All right, I want you all to imagine that you're watching a movie, and one of the characters in the movie says to another, Joey, I swear to you, on my mother's grave. What kind of a movie? You know, I keep trying. Um, if you heard that in a movie, first of all, it would be a shocking movie. But what kind of a movie would you most likely be watching, right? <laughs> You'd probably be watching a mafia movie. Um, maybe something like The Godfather or something along those lines, um, which is actually coming back into theaters next month. Um, and in that movie, if someone said, I swear on my mother's grave to another character, what kind of character would be speaking? It would be a gangster. And you can tell right away without even knowing the end of his sentence, whatever he says and whatever the circumstances are, that this guy is a liar, that he's basically untrustworthy. And we can, we can tell that everybody knows he's a liar, that he has a reputation for being a liar, that he himself knows that he's a liar, um, and this time, when what he has to say is actually true, he has to up the ante and resort to an oath. I swear on my mother's grave. Um, and now here in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus takes aim at this question of taking oaths. And his basic message is, don't take oaths ever, 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 ever. Um, so what we have today is a very simple idea uh, but one with far-reaching implications. Uh, so please turn with me now to uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 33, and we're going to look at this together. This is page 810 of the Pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So today we're going to look at three things. First, the problem. Why were the Pharisees behaving like gangsters? Second, what does it mean for our yes to be yes and our no to be no? And third, we'll focus on two practical examples. So first, the Pharisees. Why were they behaving like gangsters? Um, when Jesus begins this subject in verse 33, it sounds innocent enough. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Just do what you say you're going to do. Nothing wrong with that. But we need to realize that with these words, Jesus just opened up a file cabinet drawer full of rabbinic teaching on the subject of taking oaths. So he wasn't critiquing just this one innocent statement, but instead the whole body of Jewish teaching that came under this big heading. Um, and it was a body of teaching that looked at and elaborated on the third commandment. The third commandment has said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because from earliest days, the Jewish people recognized this commandment as prohibiting sins of speech, which included blasphemy, which was directly cursing God's name, or ascribing evil to God's name, and that was a serious sin in Israel. But the third commandment also included evoking God's name in an oath, and that was the more common thing that it applied to. 
So if you said, I swear to God, or I swear in God's name that I will do this, you absolutely had to do it. Otherwise, you had taken God's name in vain and were guilty of serious sin. But what happened over the next few hundred years is that the rabbis and the Pharisees developed an elaborate system of rules for what did and didn't count as swearing in God's name. And later on in Matthew, in chapter 23, we hear Jesus critiquing them for this practice. So he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Or if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Jesus said, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. That's all in Matthew 23, starting at verse 16. And what Jesus means, in other words, is that all swearing and oath-taking ends up being in God's name because God owns the whole earth which is surely the same thrust that we find here in Matthew 5 as well. Verse 34 says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And the idea is that God owns everything, all of it. God owns your head, because he can make the hairs of your head white or black as he chooses. So all swearing, then, is really swearing in God's name to one degree or another. Therefore, it comes under the third commandment, and therefore, you can't weasel out of it. Because what did all these codes of the Pharisees really accomplish? What what they did was give the Pharisees power to lie to people who didn't know the code, right? I swear by the temple that I will pay you 500 shekels for the piece of land. Swearing by the temple means nothing. Now I don't have to pay you, sucker. It's, it's nothing but a system of codified lying, isn't it? So the Pharisees are behaving here just exactly like gangsters. They've adopted the language of habitual lies. In their pushnickiness to pass out every jot and tittle of the law, they've ended up making a mockery of the whole thing. So Jesus says, this file cabinet drawer right here, full of a couple of thousand years of rabbinical teachings on oaths, let's put our thumbs on the little black plastic catches, pull that drawer out of there, and toss that in the dumpster. And let's replace all of that with this tiny little business card that just says, when you say yes, mean yes. When you say no, mean no. Because he concludes in verse 37, anything more than this comes from evil. And I hope we can all see now exactly why anything more than that comes from evil. Because the people of God are people of the truth, trustworthy in every word. So why do we have any need of oaths? Oaths are for liars. And that's really all the theology that I have for you this morning. Um, We've covered the whole passage on oaths, and that's about as complicated as it gets. Um, But it does have some very far-reaching implications, so let's talk about those next. Second, what does it really mean for our yes to be yes and our no to be no? I have to start by saying that, to me, you all look a lot better than those Pharisees on this point. I've never heard any of you swear an oath, and you don't need to. You're not gangsters, and you live lives of integrity that uh, make you basically trustworthy people. But nevertheless, I do expect that we all have room for improvement on this subject, because... 
just how seriously does Jesus expect us to take our own words and how scrupulously ought we to stick to them? To answer these questions, I want to take us back to Judges chapter 11. It's good to turn there, uh, page 212 of the Pew Bibles, Judges chapter 11, the story that Abena read about Jephthah's vow. This is not at all a nice story. It's really one of the worst stories in the Bible. I'm sorry if you found this story troubling when we read it earlier. It's, it is a very disturbing story. But all scripture is God's word, and it's nonetheless important for us to learn from this story too. Uh, Judges 11 verse 29 says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. We're in Judges 11 verse 29. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. The ESV puts a heading on this story and calls it Jephthah's tragic vow. Other Bible translations go further and call it Jephthah's foolish vow, uh, because, of course, it turns out to be a terrible blunder. I mean, honestly, what does he imagine would happen? That one of his goats would rush out and meet him? Now, of course, the Lord gave him the victory, and of course, the first person out to greet him on his return was his only daughter, which left Jephthah to make a terrible choice. And as is often the case in the Old Testament, the readers left a little unclear what to make of this story. Did Jephthah do right or wrong here? Because not everything that people do or say in the Bible is good. A lot of it is really evil. Villains are recorded here as well as heroes. And even the heroes have clay feet. So the question arises from this story, should Jephthah have kept his foolish vow to the Lord, even though that meant murder? And although there's room for debate, we need to judge the text not based on our modern sensibilities, but by the clues that it gives in the text itself. And the clues in the text point to the answer, yes, he should have kept his vow. The clues are that the Hebrew narrative concludes every story with the idea it wants us to take from that story. So you look to the last line for the answer of what we're supposed to make of it. If, the, if a character speaks at the end of a story, then that character's usually in the right, and what they say is the right lesson from the situation. And in this case, the story ends with the daughter herself. Verse 39, and at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. So we notice that the last note is a note of somber tragedy. You know, this story is a terrible tragedy. It must never be repeated. It was a terrible vow. But also, the daughter herself was a great hero. She's worthy to be remembered and celebrated. She was pure, she was brave, and she was righteous in this story. And in verse 36, the daughter herself commands her own father, saying, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. We notice that she was an adult daughter of marriageable age, and that she gave her life to this vow. It wasn't taken from her. On her own righteous instruction, then, we take the fulfillment of this terrible vow as the right course, as better than not fulfilling it. 
And this story then brings us to the sober conclusion that although murder is frightful and the sacrifice of your own child even worse, something God said he would never dream of commanding, even so, breaking your word is worse. In this story, making yourself a liar is worse than making yourself a murderer. So if Jephthah would keep his word in that situation, then I think we can answer the question, how seriously ought we to take our own words, with the answer, very seriously, as life and death. And how scrupulously ought we to stick to them, as if our own lives depended on it. So we don't take oaths, and we generally do what we say, but I wonder this morning if it's all the time. Sometimes we say to a friend, I'll pray for you. And then, in fact, we forget all about it. Sometimes we say, I'll come to your party, and then we ditch it when something better comes along. And sometimes we say, yes, I'll do that for you. And then a month later, it's still not done. If we are really committed to Jesus' words that our yes should always mean yes, then what that does is make the body the slave of the tongue. Makes the body the slave of the tongue. We have a moment of decision. It is in what we say. It is in the answer that I choose to give. But having said it, I am beholden and chained to those words, no matter how I might feel about them later. So it is a little like I have conceived a pregnancy that may not and must not be aborted. My moment of choice is in the past, and now there is only consequence. Our words are not abortable. We are used to this idea when we make solemn vows, like wedding vows. We promise, I will be faithful, whatever the future circumstances, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. But the rule of oath says that nothing we say to a friend in a text message is really any less solemn than those wedding vows. We're just as bound to carry it through or to be categorized with the gangsters and the Pharisees as someone whose yes doesn't really mean yes. So then today I'm calling all of us, myself included, to a much higher integrity of speech. Do not say words that you do not mean. When you say yes to someone, immediately make a plan for how you will carry that yes out. And if it turns out to be much harder than you thought, then work much harder to make it happen. Psalm 15, O Lord, who who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The one who swears even to his own hurt, and does not change. In the end, if our circumstances overcome us and we fail to fulfill our word, then we treat that as a sin against the person we gave our yes to, and we go to them in repentance for their forgiveness. Because with the best will in the world, we are going to fail. This is a high calling. We're sinners, and following Jesus isn't easy, not in this area any more than other areas. But at the same time, just the same as other areas, we constantly swim in the ocean of God's grace. And of course, there is forgiveness when we fail in this area too. All this should make us cautious in giving out our yes, and wisely so. And I want to remind you that you do have a no too. (laughs) Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You have a no. Some of us hardly ever use our no. Uh, That's a big weakness for me. Um, But Jesus says we do have one, and we should use it at the proper time. It's much harder to hurt someone's feelings on the front end by saying no than it is to disappoint them on the back end by not keeping our word. But that's not honest. 
and it's a coward's way out. We should be appropriately cautious to commit ourselves, knowing that we will be bound to follow through. But on the other hand, we should not allow that wise caution to become unholy fear. We cannot, out of this line of thinking, refuse to ever give anyone our yes, because that will rob us of life and purpose and even humanity. So young couples today are increasingly afraid of commitment and are deferring marriage for years, but that's just a different form of cowardice. This isn't full human life. We grow and deepen who we are by making promises and then keeping them. So yes, it is going to be hard. Yes, it will take much more grit than we ever imagined when we first made the choice. But the man who commits wisely and sees it through will emerge a prince, while the man who withholds his commitment will always be a child. To inspire you in giving and sticking to your yes, I want to show you this picture. We're ready for it, Zach. <laughs> Thank you. Um, these are two runners. The young man on the left is called Paul Scott. He's in ninth grade, and Paul is blind. And his great love is to run cross-country, but to do that, he needs a guide runner. So the young man on the right is called Rebel Hayes. He's in fourth grade, and he serves as Paul's guide runner. That means he has to do intensive training every single day to keep up with the ninth grade cross-country team. Turns out Paul's quite good at running, and Ryan has to work, uh, Rebel has to work really hard to keep up with him. But he said yes, and he's determined not to let Paul down. And when I look at that picture, that young fourth grader is already a prince. Thank you, Zach. So let me close now with two practical examples of letting our yes be yes. We first got a very big one, and then a small one. And the big one is marriage. Marriage is a yes that we gave in our youth that we carry out to death. In other words, it's not giving up our marriage to divorce. Uh, we all go into our marriages with that commitment, don't we? We all go in saying yes and meaning it, but years later it can waver. Now, I know this is a huge topic. It deserves much more attention than I can give it today. Uh, and I know that it's full of pain for many of us here, broken marriages, litter the landscape of all of our lives. Um, what I can offer for you today is just the briefest of summaries of what Jesus teaches in verses 31 and 32 of our passage. Um, but we have a much fuller treatment on this subject, which we're going to make available to you this week. Back in 2016, Taylor preached a full sermon on everything the New Testament teaches about uh, divorce and remarriage. We're going to um, send that out this week in the weekly MailChimp, um, and I'd really encourage you to listen if you want more information on this subject. In that sermon, Taylor reminds us both of the high calling that we have as followers of Jesus and also of the marvelous grace of God that covers over our sins and failings. But to summarize what he says in that uh, sermon, in God's sight, divorce is always a tragedy. Jesus said he hates it. The design of marriage is that it would be lifelong and ended only by death. That was in sharp contrast to the attitude of the Pharisees at the time, who had a very casual attitude toward divorce. At that time, any man could divorce his wife at any time for pretty much any reason, as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus challenged that severely in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 that we read today. He taught, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The charge of adultery that Jesus gives here assumes that there's a remarriage after the divorce. So the adultery is taking another sexual partner or another spouse afterward. So what he says then, in other words, is that marriage is a gift that all of us only receive once. We receive it once, if at all. Some of us never marry for one reason or another. But if we do, then it's a gift given once. And so the conclusion is, make this one work. Because if you lose it, don't expect the gift to come around again. Taking this attitude changes the way that we view our marriages and the effort that we'll take in maintaining them. When I prepare couples for marriage, I tell them to think of their marriage not as one house on a street full of houses, but as a single Mars base on a dead and empty planet. If you don't like your house, you can always move. But if you don't like your Mars base, you've got to fix it. <laughs> you've got to improve it. You've got to make it work because there's nowhere else out there that you can live. So that means there's no level of effort that isn't worthwhile if that's your view of marriage. I'll do anything to keep my body healthy because I only get one body. And similarly, I'll do anything to keep my marriage healthy because I only get one marriage. But sometimes with all the effort in the world, there's just nothing that we can do to save our marriages. And so Jesus gives us an exception clause right here in verse 32. The exception of adultery. And that exception not only makes the divorce just and valid, but it also makes remarriage just and valid. Jesus' exception is on the ground of sexual immorality, which means if your husband or wife cheats on you, it can justify a divorce and another marriage for the partner who is cheated on. Not necessarily. Some marriages stick it out and heal through that, and good for them. But Jesus says divorce is a valid option in this case. And in Taylor's sermon, we also add... Elsewhere from scripture, um, we add two other situations where divorce is just and valid. One comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, which says that if an unbelieving partner just ups and leaves, if one half of the marriage just abandons the other, there's just not much you can do. Paul says, let them separate, and it justifies a remarriage for the abandoned partner. And finally, as Taylor shows in his sermon, the book of Exodus lays out the responsibilities of a husband to a wife in marriage and says that she should be free to go if these are not fulfilled, in particular if he doesn't provide for her safety because he beats her or confines her or starves her or doesn't make a safe home for their children, then this too justifies a divorce and a new marriage for the woman. In all three of these exceptions, the divorce can only be just for one half of the couple. And remarriage is only just if the divorce was just. So I think you can see that the standard of Jesus on this subject is much higher than the practice of most of the American church. But yes should mean yes. We promised till death do us part. So I've waded very briefly into a vast subject. There's so much more to be said. Uh, please do listen to Taylor's sermon for more details, more examples and much more pastoral care on this subject. But it's really important that the church should be talking about this. So that's the very big thing. And my final example is very small, very trivial by comparison. Uh, but this has been on my heart, and I actually think it could be life-giving. I want to close by talking about punctuality. When I was a student in college, 
A visiting preacher opened up this text for Matthew 5 that we have in front of us, and he said to us very boldly and plainly, college students, it's a sin to be late for a meeting. If you said you'd come at 10 and you actually show up at 10.05, then you haven't kept your word. You haven't let your yes be yes. And I think in reflection, that's maybe a little heavy-handed. Um, <clears throat> compared to other common sins, that seems hardly worth talking about. And timeliness, after all, is much more of a cultural expectation than a moral absolute. But I will say this. That sermon changed the culture of our student fellowship quite a lot. Um, and the change was very much for the better. So what we found was that people started showing up to things on time. Meetings started on time. They ended on time. They stopped feeling rushed. They stopped feeling embarrassing at the beginning. And the people who came were more present and less distracted. And they got more done. That college preacher had us reflect on what was really going on in our hearts that made us constantly late for things. And what we discovered was that almost always it was because we wanted to cram in one more task before we left. One more email, one more page read, one more item checked off our to-do list. But as we thought about that, what we realized was that that just meant that I was selfishly hogging a little more time for me at the expense of your time. I was making you wait for me while I stole a few extra minutes. And then because I didn't leave enough time to get to my meeting, I was always rushing, driving too fast, fuming at all the red lights, cursing other drivers. Everywhere I went, I arrived stressed and frazzled. It took me the first 15 minutes of the meeting to calm down and be properly present to what was going on, and I finished my days exhausted. So when we listened to that preacher and started to make punctuality a priority, we arrived to things early and unhurriedly. We settled ourselves in. We prepared our hearts and minds for what was about to happen. And we found that we did the same amount of stuff in any given day. In fact, probably more. But we did it with a lot less stress and a lot less guilt, too. So I really commend to you, even in this tiny thing, to let your yes really mean yes. To let 9 o'clock really mean 9 o'clock. Because, sure, I picked one very big example of marriage and one very tiny example of punctuality, but they're connected, aren't they? The person who's heard the upward call of Jesus and determined in their heart to do every tiny thing they say, who is faithful in all the little things, is the very same person whose yes will mean yes in the big things. The hundreds of tiny yeses are boot camps to the big yeses, and trustworthiness in the major things is demonstrated in all the minor things. So friends, if we want our words to be taken seriously, then we must take them seriously, even the small ones. Amen.